it's a little difficult to even know where to begin. My personal observation of what is happening in our country, every time I reflect on it, the teaching that comes up in my mind is a sermon, what's called the fire sermon by the Buddha, where he says, the eyes are on fire, the nose is on fire, the mouth is on fire, etc. And he goes through all of the six consciousnesses, including the mind being on fire. And it feels to me as if we're on fire. And the fire is connected to one of the deepest teachings of the Buddha, one of the other deepest teachings of the Buddha, which is the teachings on the 12 links of dependent origination where he says, everything is dependently originated. There is nothing that is independently originated because there is this, there is that. When that, this ceases, that ceases. And he, he teaches about 12 links from ignorance to suffering. And in, that, in those 12 links is a... Um, is a kind of hidden gem. And that, hi and that hidden gem is that in the very uh, um, middle of the process from ignorance to suffering is the possibility of freedom. that there is actually a way by knowing how it is that because we are ignorant, suffering is inevitable and seeing the links along the way, which I'm not going to go into tonight because that's not the main uh, subject, but that if we understand that, it, that there, is, there, is, there, is, there is a place, a, a, a couple of links in that set of de, uh, links of dependent origination, where if we are really conscious, if we're really awake, if we really see what is happening and we admit what is happening, that it is possible to break the chain and to not suffer. And that place, uh, you want me to tell you what the place is? That place is the place where there is contact with, by a sense object, with a sense door, 
and there is feeling that occurs. So, if I ring the bell, that sound is, a, is, the, is the sense object, and the hearing of it is the sense, the, it hits the ear, and in the hearing of it, a feeling arises. And I can feel that feeling as either pleasant, unpleasant, some of you may think it's unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that if we don't understand that, we go directly into liking that sound, that pleasant sound, and wanting more, becoming greedy for more, like, ring it again, ring it again, it's really beautiful, I really like that. Or if we don't, or if it's unpleasant, and we don't notice that it's unpleasant, we just notice that we don't like it. Like, stop it, right now, stop it. I can't stand it anymore, I don't want it, it's unpleasant, I hate it, get rid of it. And that if it's neutral, we just ignore it. And because we don't have control over that, and because we're not conscious of what is, hap- what is actually happening, these links, so the, the sound hitting the ear, the ear hearing, having, that's, that's a sense consciousness, and from the hearing, this feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, And right there is the possibility of cutting that chain from ignorance to suffering. Because we recognize the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasantness nor unpleasantness. And the greed for the pleasant, the hatred for the unpleasant, and the ignoring of the neutral does not happen. Because we have made the invisible visible, we have made the unconscious conscious. Sounds simple, right? Sounds really, really, really simple. Go try it, right? So moving from that place of reactivity, which is the greed, the hatred, and the delusion, to a place of responsiveness where we recognize what we're feeling and we respond to that, moving from that place of reactivity, of greed, hatred, and delusion, to a place of responsiveness where we recognize what is happening is the whole journey to freedom. If we understand that, that is our work. And if we don't understand it, the world is on fire. And the world is on fire. I've been listening to the news 
trying to understand how we got here and how we could possibly extricate ourselves. We have had a racial problem in America for 400 years. One that has not been consciously acknowledged in all corners. It has been acknowledged in some corners, but it has not been acknowledged universally. There are some blessings to technology where now we can actually be placed right there where that racial hatred is being played out in very, very, very graphic terms. And so we ask ourselves, as practitioners, as people who are really well-intentioned and who really want to do the right thing and don't want to suffer and don't want to create more suffering in the world, what do we do? How do we cope with this? How do we come from confusion to clarity? Because there is a lot of confusion around. And what is even scarier is the statistic that I've heard is there are 300 million guns in America. That is one gun for every single man, woman, and child that exists in America. So if there is this body of hatred that is unacknowledged, and there is uh, the means to express that hatred, it's not unusual that we are where we are. So to come back to us as practitioners, what will we do? Do we really feel powerless? Or do we feel powerful? And if we're feeling powerless, then we're completely mistaken. Because as a practitioner, you are empowered. You are empowered because you are on the road to freedom. And if you are on the road to freedom, that is a powerful place. But if you are thinking that that road to freedom is a solitary road, then you are terribly mistaken. Because the other piece of the Buddha's teaching is this teaching that this body, mind, heart is not a self. And why is it not a self? It's not a self because it is inextricably and inexorably connected to all of these other bodies, hearts, and minds that are sitting in this room and are all around us in this city, state, 
country, and world. And if we don't understand that, then we need to go out and get it understood. <laughs> we need to really reflect, practice, understand this whole scheme in, that you're living in, that we're living in, and understand its connection to every single other body, mind, and heart that exists, whether you encounter it or not. So we are connected so closely by technology, and we have never been more disconnected than we are in 2016. So I wonder if there is something that you have reflected on, some understanding that you have come to, or have you heard the news and thought, well, I just get on with my life because I'm just on the road to freedom here. I'm a practitioner, and this is a solitary practice, and I just do my thing, and the rest of you are going to have to just work it out for yourselves. Because if we do that, then the power that we have as practitioners will get completely lost, because we are connected. We cannot, be, we cannot disconnect ourselves, no matter how much we try. So there's a teaching, there's another teaching in mostly in the Mahayana school of Buddhism that talks about two realities. Absolute reality, which is a transcendent, uh, transcendent above this physical world reality. called sometimes ultimate reality, or absolute reality, or transcendent reality. And relative reality, which is this. The body that we see, the things we see, hear, smell, taste, think. And are you in a place where you actually believe that your practice will lead you to transcendent reality and that therefore what is really true and what is really valuable is the transcendent reality where we're just dust. We don't really exist. We're just, you know, or the, as the scientists tell us, we're 99% space, right? So that ultimate reality that dust particles in the wind. Or do we understand that there are actually these two levels of reality and that, that they're not binary? That we're not either in one or the other, but that they coexist and that our practice in which we recognize and perhaps 
when we're in deep meditation and actually get dedicated to our meditative practice and touch that transcendent reality that there is somebody here that is touching that transcendent reality even though this somebody merges into the whole body of the universe both are true And if that is so, what is our responsibility? How do, we, how do we even begin to sort this out? How do we use our power with love? And how do we use our love with power? Because we can't get anything done if those two are not balanced. I hope I'm making sense to you. This is from Martin Luther King. Power properly understood is nothing but the ability to to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. And one of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites, so that love is identified with the resignation of power and power with a denial of love. Now, he says, we've got to get this thing right. What we need to realize is that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. It is precisely this collision of immoral power with powerless morality that constitutes the major crisis of our time. So that was 40 years ago, and it feels like the needle hasn't moved. So I wanted to play you a song from, um, by Sweet Honey in the Rock, which is called Ella's Song. And I, I, I had the words printed. We don't have enough for each one of you, but you can share it with your neighbors so that you know what song they're singing, what, what lyrics they're singing. And Ella is Ella Baker who was a, um, a civil rights advocate and movement uh, mover in, uh, in, the early, in the 50s and 60s of the, ninth, of the 20th century. She was a, an advisor to Martin Luther King, and she is the one who brought the students in uh, to the movement and had them start... Um, the Student Nonviolent Communicating, uh, Coordinating com- uh, Committee, sorry. And uh, she was quite a lady. And so Sweet Honey in the Rock has uh, Bernice Regan, who's, the head, who's one of Sweet Honey in the Rock, has written this song in honor of Ella and essentially is expressing in some ways some of the things that Ella uh, said. And so...
I just I wanted to give this to you as a gift because I I, I think if you're thinking about what am I to do? What, do, what am I? I'm just some little person and I'm just trying to make my way in life and I'm just trying to become as good a person as I can be and be a spiritual person and attain some realization and you know all this social stuff, it has nothing to do with me because I don't hate anybody and I'm not doing anything wrong and you know why don't you all just get it together? It, it, essentially this song is beautiful because it encourages us to see ourselves as powerful and that there is something that we can do which we all must realize. Thank you. Can you start it? Yeah. 
so freedom. That's what we talk about in our, in our practice. When we're in meditation and we realize the ultimate, we can glimpse the spacious, formless, vast sky of who we are. And then we come back into the, uh, the place where we're formed and we, what we call the real world. We're in the stark reality of the relative. And we remi- we're reminded then that our practice is not just being in the ultimate, but actually that our practice lands us right in the middle of our lives. That we're actually in the middle of our lives. And that's in the middle of our lives is where our practice ripens. Not when we're in retreat in those beautiful formless places, right, Brian? You know a lot about those, right? A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. But actually, would you say that where you learn is when you're in the middle of your life? To me, that's it's a very smooth transition back and forth like this. Um, to me, that that is the whole practice to sit there and train. This is kind of what we were speaking about in the smaller room to train and train and train to be the world's greatest meditator. Um, I don't think that that's where it's at. It's about transforming our lives and our lives are, are lived really off the cushion. And that's where the, all of this, you're talking about retreat practice, really bears its fruit. Um, is in the moment-to-moment, day-to-day living of interacting with people, working. Um, I had a, a little bit of an insight. This is you know, New York Insight, Insight Meditation Practice, uh, years ago when I was on this retreat and you know I, for a few weeks I was there and all of a sudden you know I just it was very simple I just heard the wind blowing back and forth I was like oh this is this is dharma is everything right it's dharma is the wind going back and forth and this is what this is what everything is right now and then maybe a year later I had another insight which was that and Dharma is the clank of the subway going down, which is, it's, it's everything. So it's a long-winded way to say that our practice has lived in relationship to other people, in relationship to working, to doing everything. And it's not just about sitting on a cushion and attaining these blissful states where we have absolute realizations. It's more about the relative So we're in a collective soup. And every one of us brings an ingredient to the pot that flavors it. Every one of us. It's this collective soup that we are um, brings a collective awakening, awakening. And without collective awakening, our awakening, our realization is incomplete. 
Thich Nhat Hanh says there's no such thing as an individual. And in the, in the Mahayana tradition, they take uh, bodhisattva vows, and the vo vows are pretty aspiring. They say, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transcend them. With it so far? Dharma teachings are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha's enlightened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. <laughs> Good luck with that. So the vows rely on um, a ground that's established of what's called bodhicitta, the wish for all beings to awaken, not just ourselves. That this mature heart that we're developing actually benefits not only ourselves, but all beings. So it's as if our practice is homeopathic and a few drops of us devoted to a wise heart and a wise path is very powerful, as Martin Luther King is saying. So we mix it with love and that balances it so that we don't become reckless and abusive. And we mix our love with power so that we can actually get something done. We all yearn for freedom. And we're mistaken if we think it's going to arrive singularly at our door or that the suffering of someone else is not our suffering. And that we are divorced from it and so there is nothing for us to do. We want to know, as Nina Simone says, how it feels to be free. But we can't really completely know how it feels to be free until everyone is free. So what I'd like to do is to ask you to turn to someone really close to you, just next to you, so that you don't have to walk around the room to find somebody that looks like a, an appropriate partner for yourself. So just the person next to you is your appropriate partner. And I'd like you to speak really softly because there are a lot of us in the room. And I'd like you to just for three minutes each, and I'll ring a bell at three minutes, and the person with the shorter hair can be the first one to speak. And to just say um, what's on your mind about the state of the world. One sentence. And maybe you completely disagree with what I've been saying. Maybe you think the world is perfectly fine as it is. It's just always been this way. People are always at each other's throats. That's okay too. And to just say, is there something you think you, your particular talents, the constellation that you call whatever your name is, that that constellation has something to offer the world and how you will offer it. 
And before you do that, I'm just going to tell you a little story of somebody named John Francis, who is an African-American man who is an environmentalist. And he became an environmentalist when he saw um, that huge spill several years ago, it has to be in the 70s, I think, or 80s, uh, a huge oil spill in San Francisco Bay. And he decided that he would never take, he wouldn't travel in motorized transportation. And he walked across the whole, from, from San Francisco to South America. I don't know how he did that, but he did it. And actually, he was hit by a truck at one point. And he's lying in the street, and the ambulance comes. They put him on the stretcher, and he says, what are you doing? And they said, you've been hit by a truck. We have to take you to the hospital. We're putting you in the ambulance. He said, no, 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 no. I do not travel in motorized carriages. And he said he realized at that point they weren't going to take him to the emergency room, they were going to take him to the loony bin. But he walked across America, I'm not quite sure how many years, but in the midst of it, he realized that people were asking him what he was doing, and when he started to tell them, he would start to argue with them because they obviously had opinions about what he was doing. And so he decided he was going to be silent and listen rather than speak. And he stayed silent for 18 years. And in the midst of being silent, he got a PhD in environmental science, was hired by the Navy to be a consultant for them. And actually, they said, we have this project, and you have to come right away. And he said, well, I'm, I forget where he was. I'm, you know, I'm in New York, and you want me in Maryland, and I'm going to have to walk there. So you're just going to have to wait. They said, well, how long will it take? He said, I don't know. But they wanted him so badly that they actually had him come. And now he does, he writes lots of legislation for environmental legislation. So this is one person who decided, because he was touched in his heart, who decided that he had to do something. And just the vow to not ride and motorize transportation opened up his whole, the next 20 years of his life, essentially. And what he said, I saw a, a, a BBC interview of him, and what he said that touched me most was that our personal ecology is just as much a part of the environment. How we treat each other is just as much a part of the environment as any carbon footprint that there is. And how do we treat each other? How do we speak to each other? How do we regard each other? So when you're speaking to your partner, can you actually look at them with eyes of love? And when you're listening to your partner, can you actually listen deeply? So that you're training yourself meditatively, not only when you're doing whatever you do or sitting in meditation, but that when you're interacting with someone else, 
that is your work, that is your meditation, that is part of your whole scheme to know how it feels to be free. So turn to your partner, please. And just talk about what we said, what we asked. So wait. <laughs> okay. See that? See that? You're, you're already out of control, right? <laughs> so can you just wait a minute? Just, just one minute. Just wait one second. You're so enthusiastic. It's great. It's really great that you're so enthusiastic. But we need to start all at the same time so I can give you the three minute, or, you know, I can tell you when three minutes have passed. So be quiet just for a moment. And then I'll, so that you can gather yourself. So practice. You're, in pra you're practicing right now. How do you practice to prepare to speak? How do you practice to speak? How do you practice to stay in your body? Not come right up to your head. I heard your head just now. Can you stay in your body, actually? Feel your body. Feel your feet on the floor or your buttocks on the chair or, or on the cushion or... Feel yourself, feel your whole body and what it feels like to be an embodied being and speak from that, not from this, from this. So I'm going to ring the bell and then the person with the shorter hair is going to start <laughs> and you're going to speak about um, what you think about the state of the world and what you feel is possible for you. What, is, what your contribution can be. Okay. Please thank your partner. So we have just a little time, we have just a little time to hear from maybe a couple of you about what you've discovered. Hi. You talked earlier about uh, ignorance on that scale. Um, when there's so much willful ignorance on display, uh, particularly in a basketball arena in Cleveland. Um, particularly? Uh, uh, at the Republican National Convention. Uh, what do you do with that? frustration that these are many people <laughs> uh, who choose their own facts uh, rather than, and it can be very frustrating when so, you feel like there isn't necessarily uh, a person or people of goodwill on sort so, of the okay. other side of the argument. Okay, so... So one thing I'd like you to do is to tell me what you personally feel because what we keep doing is projecting onto groups and others and our perceptions 
are not always true. So how do we check that, right? And how do we, and how do we hear ourselves and how do we know ourselves when we're going down that road? Because that's like a rabbit hole that's in some ways creating all of this dissension, all of this enmity, all of this animosity, all of the ways in which we've, we've sliced and diced ourselves up into race and class and political party and all of the ways that we divide ourselves. And what, what is it that brings us together so that we can solve these enormous problems that we're having where, you know, we're killing a class of people, right? And as long as we, in our own hearts, are also dividing ourselves from others and pointing to them, we are not conscious of what, what's happening with our, with our own minds. So I really want to hear from you as to where you are. Um, I'm sorry, where I am with regards to which specific or just start yeah, and what what you've discovered for yourself um that it's uh very emotional for me and very personal when people get up there and deny that there is a racial problem in this country when somehow when pe when people go on civil rights protests that they're condemned as the problem rather than part of the solution in a long history of protest and change in the United States of America. Um, uh, when uh, <laughs> this is going to feel like an, but people who seem to genuinely believe the uh, stuff that's being sold in terms of uh, building walls and uh, uh, and you know casting aspersions on people of a religion who have nothing to do with the horrible acts that have happened in the world any more than I do um, and uh, so what can you do <laughs> Because if we start to feel powerless, especially we who are working towards feeling some freedom within ourselves, how do we spread that freedom across the whole world? How do we spread our own peace across the whole world? Because if we're constantly struggling against, then we're not building. So how do we how do we move from our habit because the, because it's very much an American habit now, right? That we're struggling against we're struggling against each other. We have different views about we have different worldviews, and we we keep struggling to to see if our we can assert our worldview as the correct one, and it feels real. It feels true. There's no doubt about it. It feels my worldview is the right one. And yet, can we look and see how 
that, that very conviction or perception creates more fissure. Sets us all on fire because it sets us up in a relationship of hatred. And I'm not saying that we kind of go around with some, you know, limp-wristed kind of, oh, I just love everybody, right? It's not, that's not what I'm suggesting. But can, but when we, when we struggle against, we feed the very thing that we're struggling against. When we build something, we're building that thing that we're building. So how do we discipline ourselves to come to that understanding and to put that into operation in our lives? Thank you. Thank you. to this and I'm a nurse by profession and I have a I always have this feeling that it's my job to heal the world when please speak as if it's a one person at a time ice cream cone ice cream cone like this that's it okay what flavor um vanilla let's say chocolate okay okay so my belief my my what am I doing well I've made calls all over the United States for Hillary Clinton because I believe blah, 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 whatever about her. But what I'm doing now, I just up my, I just up my commitment and now I'm going to be a call. I'm going to try to inspire other people to make calls. And the reason is not because she's wonderful or blah, not, not because of she's going to save us, but I want like-minded people to organize, to get together, to connect, and to feel hopeful. My job I feel is to, to, whenever someone says to me, oh, I'm so worried, I say, wait a minute, what can we do? There are things we can do. We can talk to each other. We can talk to other people. We can organize. We can make phone calls. We can vote. We're in America. And the last thing I can do, the, the worst thing I can do is to feel more anger, more contempt, feed that. I don't want to feed that. I want to say, I'm hopeful. I'm in America. We can vote, we can, I can talk to you, you can talk to me, we can get excited, we can demonstrate, we can speak to our friends. We cannot be passive. This is not the time to be, and that's it. That's, that's my job. My job is to just connect, connect, connect. I want to connect with all human beings, and, and, and it comes out of being mortified about these killings, and I think the reason we're, we're seeing them is because we have these iPhones, and they're, these have been going on for years, but now we're actually... It's in our face. It's, it's like we can't get away from it. And we have to just love each other. I mean, that's very simplistic, I know. But So love without power is anemic. No, but power without love. And power without love is reckless and abusive. So our task is balance. That's right. And, and there's power in the connection. Other. There's power in connection. When you and I hold hands and three other people hold hands with us, we have a... We have a we have a rope. We have a whole, we have a chain. We have a so, chain. So notice how we go external. So we have external issues, yes? Yet those external issues are reflecting something internal because we are all the world together. And so however the world is, we have projected that onto that whole screen that 
reflects back to us the state of our own hearts. So notice when we are constantly looking outward for the solution. And notice when we actually believe we are our, this, this mind, body, heart is, houses the solution. This mind, body, heart houses the solution, not some other mind, body, heart. We, yes, we have a system, and of course, we, we need to participate in that system. There is no question about it as citizens. And yet we also have individual responsibility. And what are those individual responsibilities? Absolutely. And how will change happen if it doesn't happen as a grassroots from, the, from each heart participating in the change? Absolutely. There's no room for passivity. Nobody else is going to change it for us. So, Thank you. Uh, it's one minute past nine for those of you who are needing to leave. And we have... So let's just wait. Okay, I think that's a go. You're telling me to go? No, no, get, yeah. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Francesca, and um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you for sharing your images and um, song and Dharma talk. And, um, you know, just put us in a headspace to really uh, think as um, the collective that we are. I was here a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, you know, one of the points that came up was being multi-ethnic, I feel like I kind of, you know, sort of... I don't know, there's no way to not claim being connected um, because we seemingly are uh, divided along the, uh, the racial lines that are visible. Um, two things. One is, I remember um, Martin Luther King said, uh, you know, hate segregation but love the segregationist and essentially the idea that the more that we can put ourselves in someone else's shoes, I know has been helpful to me. As a journalist, I've had to do stories and interview leaders of the NRA, people in upstate New York who are much more conservative than I personally am, and try and be inclusive and representative in my reporting of that story. On the other hand, <clears throat> uh, I see what's around, and one of the things that I proposed at graduate school when I go this fall is that um, as many meditation apps and whatnot are created. One of the things in the program they offer is uh, to come up with an app of your own. And I suggested one for, um, for police that they could perhaps uh, begin to use some of these techniques uh, prior to getting out of the car when they were able to um, perhaps begin to calm themselves down and be more mindful on any kind of a stop. And I guess I just feel like a lot of we all want to be happy and we're all connected, but we all have a lot of fears. And I think that when that fear can be transformed into the grief or the sadness and we can see that in the other person, that's maybe the beginning of our connection to be able to transform it. Thank you. So that's all we're going to have time for. Unfortunately, I'm sorry.
So before you leave, I'm just going to play you one more song. But I'm going to read you a poem first. And it's called Kindness by Naomi Shehab Nye, who's a Palestinian-American poet. It's called Kindness, as I said. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the threads of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to ma mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Can you play that last video? Thank you. 
Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Then I go to my brother And I say, brother, help me please But he winds up knocking me To use George H.W. Bush's <laughs> metaphor, we're a thousand points of light. And it's actually possible guy. for change to come. As we understand from Dharma, everything is impermanent. Everything. Red Bull gives you wings. Everything. And what we see as the state of the world will change. And we are agents of change. And so our practice is really important in this time that we develop a deep practice that understands both realities, that we are who we are in our physical identity, in that relative sense of reality, and that we are also dust in the wind, and we merge together all the time. So all of these issues of racism and climate change and the despoliation of the planet, and the misogynistic uh, customs that demonize women and all of these all all of the ways that you can name that we as human beings abuse each other it can change and each one of us has to be that agent of change and I am fighting desperately with myself to not be pessimistic it's very difficult in the face of everything that's going on to keep optimistic. But this law of impermanence, this law of change makes it possible. It's inevitable. And each one of us can do what we can do 
to exercise our power with as much love as we can produce. It's necessary. It's vital. And I hope that you are inspired to really know what you personally can do. Not what somebody else should do. Not what Obama or Clinton or what's his name, Trump, should do, but what you can do. Yes, we have to vote for whoever we vote for and not demonize who the other person votes for because that's not our business. Our business is to make our own determinations about what is true, what is collectively beneficial, and what will do the least harm. And we can do it because our practice builds wisdom. And if it isn't building wisdom, then you need to go talk to a teacher. Really, it's a way of knowing whether your practice is effective. You don't notice a growth in wisdom. Your practice needs some holding. And I love every single one of you, and I'm so grateful for your presence here tonight. And may we all wish deeply for that change to come and become the agent of that change. So let's dedicate our practice tonight to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere, the oppressed and the oppressors. May all beings who, are, who have suffered losses be comforted. May those who are homeless be housed. May those who are hungry be fed. May those who have suffered injustice find justice. May all beings be well. Thank you so much. Good night.